I mean, like you see it in the emails, right? Where, you know, Tim Sweeney reaches out to Tim Cook about something. He starts the email with a y'all. <laughs> and then Tim <laughs> Cook is like, who is this guy? Uh, <laughs> that's just like, yep, that, that really this, is sort what, of. I think I think he said, was this the guy at our rehearsals or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Something like> that. <laughs> you guys realize yeah. that this whole court thing is just Tim Sweeney getting back at Tim Cook for that email. You realize that. Right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Here. Never got a reply. <laughs> Greetings, listener, and welcome to the very first episode of the Metacast, the podcast in which we explore the business of video games. I'm your host, Nicola Vreke, or Nico for short, and today I'm joined by Aaron Bush, Abhimanyu Kumar, and Sergey Evdokimov. I'm very sorry if I butchered that, guys. So today we are giving our insights on the ongoing Apple versus Epic trial. We are discussing whether content is where the big bucks are to be made in the gaming industry, and finally, we are reviewing Applovin's Q1 results. But before we dive into that, Aaron, could you give us some insights on what we're doing with the Metacost? What is the plan here? Absolutely. And, and thanks, Nico. I'm extremely excited about the Metacast to be kickstarting it with you and this talented team and to just get behind the mic and talk about games. It's going to be fun. When I started Master of the Meta, our newsletter two years ago, I was mainly writing to myself about an industry that I love. My belief was that learning in public is a superpower. It helps others, makes yourself smarter, and it often leads to like-minded people coming together to accomplish even bigger things. And that's definitely been the case with Master of the Meta and Navig at large. But there are many other ways to accomplish that goal and a podcast is definitely one of them. So, so very excited. Now, obviously, there are other good gaming podcasts out there, especially from our friends Deconstruct They're a Fun and Elite Game Developers. But we're working to differentiate our podcast in a few ways. One, the Metacast is about the business of gaming, but more specifically, it's focused on figuring out where the industry is going, what it means, and how to adapt. Whether you're an entrepreneur, executive, developer, PM, investor, play another role in the ecosystem. We are entirely future-focused. And our Friday episodes, like this one, are weekly discussions about a range of topics. It's not necessarily a news show, right? We have a, a newsletter for that, but it will occasionally hit on big news items, emerging trends, we'll share lessons and insights, and we'll hit on other important topics as they come up. Nico, you know, as you mentioned, is the host, but we'll have a rotating panel of participants. So you'll get insights from a diverse array of individuals with different backgrounds and perspectives every week. So, you know, me and Manu and Sergey won't always be on, but I'm excited to, to have Nico introduce all of our other guests to you in the, the coming weeks. We're also planning on launching more types of segments as well, you know, different types of deep dives, series about big and complex topics and more types of conversations with leaders across the industry. It'll take us some time to scale that up, but we have big aspirations and want to make this an awesome, all-encompassing podcast for you all. And then lastly, I'll just mention that we want this podcast to be listener first and fun. So if you as a listener have any topic requests, questions, or want to share your own thoughts or jokes, hit us up. You know, we aim for each Friday episode to include a segment purely for responding to listeners. So, you know, never be shy to email us at metacast at or even tweet us at novic underscore co. And 
I think we can reinforce that a bit later too. So again, I'm super excited to get this rolling and I hope you are too. So thanks everyone and back to you, Nico. Thanks, Aaron. One final little point of housekeeping. Although everyone in the podcast, except for me, knows what they're talking about, nothing of what we say should be seen as investment advice. Now let's get into some intros. So um, guys, I'd like to know from you first what keeps you busy these days, then what you would describe as your area of expertise, and then finally, I'd also like to know, as we're talking about games, what game are you currently playing? So Aaron. Yeah, uh, so I'm an investor at The Motley Fool and co-founder of Novik, where I help Manu build the leading research consulting and advisory firm that helps companies master the business of gaming. And I, you know... Work on a lot of things with Manu, but mainly help spearhead a lot of our, our content work with our growing team. In terms of my you know area of expertise, my work has always been investing. So I'm comfortable digging into most any company. My background has primarily been in public markets, but I really enjoy thinking about all types and stages of companies and figuring out uh, who is going to win. And then let's see, game that I'm currently playing. I don't know if you guys are basketball fans, but the NBA playoffs in the U.S. are picking up um, right now. So I've been in the mood for NBA 2K Mobile, and I've been playing that quite a bit here and there. But also, I've somehow never played the Mass Effect games in the past. So I'm, I'm about to dive into the remastered Legendary Edition, which I'm, I'm super excited about. That'll be fun. Let me know if it's really good, then uh, I'll give it a try as well, because I haven't tried those either. Um, all right, awesome. mind you. How about you? Yeah, so uh, first of all, it's awesome to be here and finally get the first of many episodes off the ground. It's been a long journey up until this point, so I'm super excited that the Metacast has now arrived. And the best part is that, you know, Navik gets to do this with an awesome team, uh, which is, of course, you guys and a brilliant set of panelists that we have lined up for future recordings. So a little bit about me real quick. Uh, my full name is Abhimanyu Kumar, but my industry nickname is Manu. Uh, I'm originally from India and have been living in Cologne in Germany for about the past five years. I've been wanting to get into games since um, I was a kid, uh, probably since the age of 10. And ever since I played the DOS version of Prince of Persia on my black and white monitor, I started off, you know, I kind of started off my journey in the industry as a hobbyist game programmer, but very quickly realized that there are people who can be doing this way better than me. So I ended up leaning into my other passion areas of, you know, game design, analytics and business to eventually become a product manager in the industry. So I've now been uh, in games for about eight and a half years, uh, the first six of which I spent at various corporates like Disney, Zynga and Flare Games primarily as a product manager. But then at the start of uh, 2019, I decided to go independent and start Navik as, you know, kind of a one-man uh, games consultancy because I realized that I could be putting my skills to use to help many more game companies around the world, you know, make better games. So ended up soft launching the consultancy for the first six months. It went pretty well. And then, you know, continued to scale the business about one, one and a half years in, Aaron and I crossed paths through pure serendipity. And it was uh, it was really the perfect meeting of minds. Uh, he was doing Master the Meta. Navik really needed a content vertical. 
I had a passion for writing myself and you know things clicked very quickly uh, with him so we ended up merging the two and here we are today uh, <laughs> building this uh, business uh, together um so as as uh, as the co-founder of Navik I'm mainly focused on you know running and scaling the consulting side of the business and essentially the company's revenue engine while Aaron runs you know content and the growth side uh, of things Navik currently has a pretty good consultant mix of you know game designers economy designers product managers and financial analysts uh, all focused on our mission to uh, enable professionals to master the business of gaming uh, we've worked with over 50 clients over the past 2 uh, and a half years uh, ranging from you know financial institutions to game studios uh, and companies of all sizes and across our three service verticals and uh, yeah you know it's it's been going great and um, i'm pumped to keep uh, building the future of navik finally in terms of uh, the games uh, i've been playing right now well i've actually gotten back into chess <laughs> uh, i downloaded uh, the chess.com mobile game uh, it's super easy to find an opponent almost you know instantly uh, one match lasts for about 10 to 15 minutes and uh, no that's not because i lose very quickly <laughs> but but yeah i was i was pretty surprised that the game actually manages to deliver a good mix of you know strategic gameplay that's also light and it's social and in a relatively short uh, session never imagine you know chess sessions could be light but but yeah pleasantly surprised and you know that's what i'm playing right now awesome awesome All right, Sergey, welcome to the podcast first. How are you doing? Yeah, hi everyone. Well, first of all, thank you very much, gentlemen, for inviting me to the very first podcast. <laughs> Hopefully it will be, you know, interesting show going on and uh, I'll be here from time to time. So, yeah, just a few words about myself. I'm uh, working as the investment director at the gaming company called uh, My Games. So far I've been, you know, uh, working the investment in particular in the gaming industry for more than 3 years. I have also founded Invest Game Source. Uh probably heard about this <laughs> brand uh and we launched it back in 2020. The idea of the Invest Game was more like, you know, to track uh, all the deals and focus primarily on the on inorganic strategy of the gaming companies. So Yeah, what games am I playing right now? Well, uh I'm playing Farmscapes, which was recently launched by Playrix, and uh right now I'm also, you know, waiting for Diablo Immortal to be launched on mobile because I'm a really huge fan of uh, Diablo series. <laughs> nice. Save. I'm so pumped. <laughs> awesome. Nico, tell us about yourself. All right. So, uh what keeps me busy these days? Um I host another podcast called The Wiser Than Yesterday podcast, uh which is very much in line with uh, what you said earlier, Aaron. learning in public is a superpower and it's been an amazing journey there. And so next to that I also well, I spend most of my time investing in um and helping startups mostly in the fintech, crypto and gaming industries. Um and so I have some operational experience in the fintech and crypto spaces, but I have no operational experience in the gaming industry. So if it sounds like I don't know what I'm talking about on this podcast, trust your instincts. <laughs> um and finally what I'm currently playing, I'm currently messing around with my uh, new Oculus Quest 2. which is a a pretty awesome device i must say i'm very surprised and i uh, play a bit of apex legends from time to time on the side too so yeah 
super excited to get it going. But before we, we go into the topics, I'd just like to say that when you're in the industry a bit, when you listen to other people talking about stuff, all the time you hear about, oh yeah, a new uh, report from Invest Game this or Invest Game reported this and that. Um, so Sergey, I'm super excited to have you on, to have your insights because uh, you uh, you guys have been making quite a name for yourselves in, this, in the industry. Yeah. Cool. All right. So topic discussion. Let's start with the first one, the Battle of the Tims. Apple versus Epic Games. So yeah, the trial has been going on for a week or two when we're recording this. And so, yeah, I mean, we can talk a lot about, you know, what the end result might be or what the repercussions might be for the industry. But I would like actually to have you guys' thoughts on a lot of the documents that were released because those documents have been a goldmine of insights into uh, especially Epic company that people don't know a lot about the inner workings of. So um Manu, would you like to tell us uh, something or well, some stuff that you find interesting? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you know, like you said, this trial started on May third, so I think we're now three weeks in. Um, but it was really like the first week where you know the majority of the goldmine uh, of data was really exposed. I did start checking, you know, week twos and week threes documents and. Yeah, there there are like some inter- interesting tidbits here and there, but nothing comparable to, you know, what was happening in the first week. So yeah, so I've collected like a bunch of things, <laughs> a bunch of data points. Uh, so starting at the highest level, so Fortnite kind of generates about 80% of Epic's revenues, which is pretty surprising. The Epic store is at about 10% and the Unreal Engine is at 3%. I really wouldn't have expected, you know, Fortnite to take up such a large share and also like Unreal at 3%, kind of equating to, you know, a meager 80 to 100 million per year business. Also pretty, pretty surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know Sergey actually did a comparison of Unreal's revenue to Unity's revenue. And I think yeah. the conclusion was uh, it was at around like two uh, Unity's uh, engine business is at like two to two point five x of that of Unreal. Is is that uh, yes, yes, okay? yes, yes, right. yes. So we we should exclude some revenue coming for uh, you know uh, reported revenue of Unity coming from ads business and only focus on the engine. And if we compare the engine revenue of Unity versus engine uh, revenue of Unreal Engine, Unity is two two point five times larger. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's pretty interesting, you know, and it kind of like tells me two things about Unity. One is Unity's huge market share. It continues to be driven by, you know, this image it has of being like the Indies engine. It has like a 50% market share, as we've kind of reported before. And the second point is, you know, Unity's engine business model, it takes like serious advantage of, uh, of the long tail. It's basically like a paper seat model versus, you know, Unreal's... Um, Unreal's royalty-driven model. So I think like both these points put together kind of result in also Unity's engine business being this 2, 2.5x higher than, you know, what Unreal is. Now, going a little bit deeper into that, uh, you know, kind of given given Tim's um, or Tim Sweeney's, (laughs) Tim Sweeney's this greater good attitude that he has. I, I don't really expect, you know, Unreal to uh, end up really changing their business model. Uh, it will still be a free access until, you know, uh, free access to the engine until lifetime revenues are hitting uh, 1 million gross, after which, you know, there's the 5% royalties uh, that happens. But 
it also kind of means like the strongest strategy for growth is really new customer acquisition and also market share stealing in a way both of which can really be driven by you know just superior engine capabilities um which they anyway doing with unreal engine 5 but also it could be driven by just building a robust services ecosystem around unreal in a similar fashion to you know how unity has done i don't know how how important that really is for uh, epic and maybe they are uh, doing it but just just some thoughts around that but yeah one other critical thing unreal engine also has this image of uh, being more of the experts engine while unity is kind of the indies engine so you know uh, it will be pretty hard to like shake off that uh, image that unreal has but you know uh, if their key strategy is you know new customer acquisition and there's already indicators that unity's uh, business model for the engine really takes advantage of the long tail probably that experts engine image is also kind of you know contributing to this uh, this 2 2 to 2.5x of a uh, lower revenue for unreal but yeah that's uh, just like okay on the high level you know like it was pretty surprising to see like unreal engine at 3% and you know that's why i went into some of these details but let let's get back to like the the key revenue generator which is fortnite and fortnite is generating 80% of epic revenues and that's why like the really interesting data is so probably like the first one was you know they had some documents around um, that was kind of capturing uh, the launch to uh, march 2020 downloads and revenue by platform from launch which was in july 2017 until march 2020 mobile drove about 33% of fortnite's downloads but it only generated about 6% of the overall revenues on the other hand you know console drove 43% of the downloads and generated 83% of the revenues and you know both these points or these observations kind of put together it leads to asking two critical questions the first question is how poor is mobile's performance versus the other platforms <laughs> and the second question is how is mobile kind of fueling the entire fortnite business as kind of like this new player acquisition channel you know because yeah like it is contributing to 33% of uh, of the launch to uh, launch to march 2020 uh, downloads so so i had to go, go into that a little bit deeper and you know just the mobile performance part of it i believe there was one document that was released that was kind of like a performance report of uh, fortnite's mobile business up until q1 2020 i think it was and in that there was just a treasure trove of you know uh, mobile performance metrics so i'll just like quickly go over some of them so on mobile specifically ios makes up for greater than 70% uh, of the mobile downloads volume and uh, has a long term ltv that is about yeah around like 85% lower than that of consoles so basically like mobiles uh, ltv is at about 3.6 dollars versus consoles which is at like 20 uh, to 25 uh, dollars and i be i believe like this massive negative 85% difference is basically driven by two key things one is mobiles retention across the board is pretty poor versus that of consoles it's like just generally down negative 80% and the second is mobile's monetization is also a little bit lower so about like negative 30 to 40%. So, you know, 
the two key metrics <laughs> or the two key metric buckets for this game are pretty significantly uh, underperforming but the interesting thing is you know kind of looking at the ltv of ios versus the cpi at which you know they're able to kind of acquire uh, users on I- ios and that looking at that comparison gives us insight into why ios and mobile in general can be considered like this acquisition channel in their overall strategy for uh, you know so ios cpi is actually at $3 and you know the ltv was at uh, 3.6 which basically means that fortnite is able to like profitably acquire new players on ios with a 20% margin up until d d180 this is not the case for android android is actually not profitable but you can with that in mind with that comparison in mind you can say that ios has kind of proven to be a great platform for new player acquisition uh, we'll we'll come back to this point later but just to go back into like ios's retention numbers a little bit more when you look at ios's retention numbers you know um, a little bit deeper and also like in just isolation it's definitely like pretty shocking to see that for one of the biggest games on mobile that has like 80% of its uh, maus coming from t1 countries the biggest game in the world its d30 retention is at like 4 to 6% if you compare now you know uh, sensor tower is uh, is our data partner and if you kind of look at garena free fires d30 retention that's at 8 to 10% pubg's d30 retention that's at like 15 to 17% i mean basically just a uh, 2 to 3x higher than you know what fortnite is doing on mobile and i mean that there, there, there are many contributors to this stark difference but the overall point really is that you know fortnite it does have a significant opportunity to improve its mobile experience and there was like a lot of supporting documentation or you know a lot of the evidence that kind of showcased like some of their plans to uh, of how they want to actually improve the mobile experience it's also kind of important to call out that you know free fire was mobile first um and pubg's mobile experience is slightly different to that uh, to you know what it has on console but again it's it also this this point also kind of points out like how important it is to think about things platform first when you're kind of building this cross platform experience so i don't know i'll probably like uh take a pause here because then then there's like i could get into cross platform learnings but did you guys have any comments reactions to any of that i guess you know i it reminds me of you know those industry charts where you know it starts where it breaks the market up between console and pc and mobile and it starts with pc and then console comes in which builds on top of yeah. pc and then mobile comes in and builds on top of both of those and i think there's some lessons for that here too where you know when we think about the cross platform nature of a game like this you know mobile really builds on top of what already has existed with pc and console but and it, it doesn't necessarily remove you know any value so there isn't too much cannibalization exactly. but second like it is self reinforcing right like i think there was a stat that 40% of mobile players have also played on non mobile platforms And so I think yeah. your point about it being a funnel to just Fortnite in general no matter what platform you're on is a pretty big point. And yeah, I imagine it's hard to fix your mobile presence when you're not on <laughs> you know like when you're not on the App Store. So um yeah, they can yeah. improve, but I think they have a fundamental <laughs> issue to improve there first of <laughs> just getting back yeah. on the store. 
but um yeah mm-hmm. it's super interesting i mean honestly to me before sergey spits like some actual knowledge the the things that stood out to me most from this was just like the comedic <laughs> element to everything um i mean like you see it in the emails right where you know tim sweeney reaches out to tim cook about something he starts the email with a y'all <laughs> and then tim <laughs> cook is like who is this guy uh <laughs> that's just like yep that, that what, really this, is sort what, of i think i think he said was this the guy at our rehearsals or something <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys realize yeah. that this whole court thing is just tim sweeney getting back at tim cook for that email you realize that, right? <laughs> That's yeah, maybe. Here. Never got a reply. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. there was that whole, like, random court digression about Peely the banana character in Fortnite, which oh, was yeah. pretty oh, hilarious. Like, there was, like, in one section, an Apple attorney was grilling one of Epic's, like, I think Epic's VP of marketing about how Peely should be clothed and because it's it's in court. <laughs> and then two hours later, <laughs> Epic's attorney follows up just somewhat randomly like i don't even know why they were still going on about this but just like making the point that there's nothing wrong about showing a naked banana because it's just a banana and i'm just like the stakes are so high for this case so this is what we choose to talk about so those are the parts that i enjoyed the most but i'm sure sergey has some some actual knowledge to drop about the subject too yeah, maybe, you know, I still some information from uh, Manui, you know, going forward to this cross-platform thing that he described. So what I'm thinking, you know, looking at the data, maybe you have seen they have published, you know, revenue by first seen platform. There was a very useful, you know, table, which you actually also presented in uh, Master the Meta Digest. And, uh, you know, the whole idea between using iOS and Android, I think, for the, for the Epic Games is just the marketing. Because if you look at the CPI rates, and look at the percentage of, you know, players who's first, you know, seen the game at iOS or Android and then switch to PS4 or Xbox, uh, you know, you get pretty much the same CPI you, you have on the platforms. So it can be that they use this, you know, mobile presence more like to market the game on the core platform, uh, which is the console and also PC. So, for example, just for, you know, our listeners to understand what I'm talking about is that if you first play iOS then there is 24% probability that you purchase, uh, you know, any item of this game on PS4 and 16% probability that you do it on the Xbox. If you first, you know, seen the game on Android, there is 35% that you're going to acquire something on the PS4 and around 19% that you're going to do this on Xbox One. So if you apply the CPIs that Manui mentioned, around $3, yes, and then, uh, you know, multiply this by 5, which is, you know, the reverse ratio, of uh, the percentage that there is the probability that someone's going to buy, you know, some stuff on the console, then you mm. get the CPI, which is still below the CPI of $20, which they have on the console. So yep. it does make some sense, you know, even though you have these, you know, not very good retention metrics, to be honest, but still you yeah. can use this as a marketing channel, you know, on the core platforms. And I think that, you know, this revenue breakdown also explains why they d- decided to start all of this, you know, court stuff. <laughs> because if uh, <laughs> if mobile platform was the major driver of the revenue, <laughs> I'm not sure yeah. that the investors, you know, would vote for it, <laughs> to be honest. No, I totally agree. I think like that insight about, you know, back calculating the CPI after looking at the revenue by first seen platform, yeah, that's pretty smart. Um, and yeah, I totally agree with that, uh, that thought. So... I'll just I'll I'll probably like just hop back to you know some of the cross-platform learning data mm-hmm. really quick. So, 
um so yeah so you know there were, we started kind of with these two questions right uh, how poor is mobile's performance versus the other platforms and we took a look at that but let's like talk about this uh using mobile as like a new player acquisition channel a little bit more so basically you know yeah we we kind of proved already that you know or not proved but the data basically said that iOS is working out to be a pretty profitable new user acquisition channel but uh, you know since Fortnite is a cross platform experience and you know based on uh, everything that Aaron and Sergey just said it's definitely you know uh, contributing to becoming this top of the funnel to uh, to the other to the other platforms there was one piece of data that really really confirmed this so this was uh, this was actually an apple's opening statement there's this dr lauren hit who is a professor of operations information and decisions at Wharton and he shared his own estimates around you know Fortnite's monthly account registrations split by platform and going all the way up till July 2017 when this game launched and from that graph you kind of look at iOS launch volume of uh, user accounts and you look at how it's trending pretty stable but none of that has actually impacted any of the user account uh, numbers for uh, you know uh, ps or xbox or switch or anything switch has actually even uh, been growing beyond that but basically what that says is you know it uh, it just double underscores that launching on mobile was just not cannibalistic to console and i mean that's a pretty pretty critical point um, because you know i've just heard like this topic come up so many times in cross platform launch discussions that you know companies are worried about this kind of cannibalization um, not not really trying to say that cannibalization is completely impossible but but yeah it just doesn't have to be the case every time you know and the way that fortnite is using mobile is pretty smart but yeah the second the second uh, interesting thing was in one of the epic uh, internal presentations on you know fortnite's uh, mobile performance they also stated that you know 38% of the daily new accounts in fortnite came in on uh, mobile and this was the 2019 average this point put together with the you know non cannibalistic point basically means that i mean that just that's the last nail on the coffin that you know launching on mobile was definitely successful uh, for bringing new players to fortnite and we already know that it's at, it's happening at like a 20% margin on the ios and then yeah last last point on you know cross platform learnings and this is uh, yeah this is coming back to what aaron said about you know 40% of mobile players have also played on non mobile platforms so yeah there is the same presentation which uh, which said that approximately 15% of mobile players go from mobile first to console and 40% of mobile players have also played on non mobile platforms so that means two things first 15% of these new mobile audiences are engaging in cross play behavior and two having access to the game across platforms contributes to increased engagement of the already existing audiences and that's that's really cool so apart from mobile being this like top of the funnel new user acquisition channel it's also a way now for console and pc players to continue their fortnite experience when they're not sitting at home on their console you know and and that's great i fortnite has like the party royale mode and the creative modes you know that that is definitely contributing to this kind of player behavior but if you kind of put like the non cannibalization and this playtime extension points together it really strongly suggests that even though fortnite's mobile revenue tracks at 6% of the overall game's revenue 
its its contribution to the overall fortnite business is actually through like increased engagement and therefore increased monetization it's actually much larger because of this you know cross platform uh, cross platform player behavior that's happening i also just probably a last one uh, and then we can wrap this up uh, i wanted to like quickly talk about the in game monetization aspect of things so again in 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 one presentation there was uh, there was a slide around how bookings are split uh, across all the virtual items that exist in fortnite and you know we all know that fortnite is a super social experience because i mean yes it is a battle royale game and it's perfect to play with friends and family but it also has this party royale and you know creative modes so therefore it is the perfect place to monetize the need for showcasing vanity through its cosmetic economy and that that's like clearly supported by this split of uh, you know the virtual items in terms of how much they contribute to bookings 67% came from the item shop conversely it was pretty interesting to see that the battle pass only contributed to like 26% of the overall bookings and why that's interesting is mainly because battle pass has caught on like wildfire across the industry as uh, as a mechanic that monetizes engagement right and i personally would have expected this number to be way higher than just 26% uh, and especially because you know even the battle pass rewards are connected to cosmetics and therefore you know this uh, monetizing the showcasing of vanity strategy so but yeah even though it's 26% it doesn't necessarily mean you know that the battle pass is unimportant something to support that fortnite actually missed its uh, 2019 revenue targets by 10% because epic released only 3 battle passes instead of 5 <laughs> that year and they ended up missing their revenue targets that basically led to a conversion drop of like negative 18% so you know that that basically drove this revenue goal miss yeah and and the other interesting monetization point was basically what sergey explained about you know the the revenue by first seen platform percentage so basically this this is like a lot of uh, yeah a lot of the interesting data points that you know that came up uh, in in the first week and uh, yeah that's all i got for now so <laughs> yeah <laughs> thanks for that man you know, yeah on yeah. that note of you know missing the revenue target maybe i can share you know some numbers I'm still, you know, as uh, all of you know, I'm, uh, you know, like a nerd guy who's always focused on the numbers and financials. So <laughs> I think I we all have a little disclose... bit of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if I may just disclose a little bit of that, I believe it would be interesting to our listeners. Uh, you know, first of all, Epic Games expected that they would get actually substantially lower revenue in, in the beginning of 2020. So they were expecting 3.6 billion uh, in total revenue. and surprise surprise yes covid-19 uh, has boosted their revenue up 40% and actually they received as we have right now on the rumored talks uh, number like 5.1 billion revenue so you can see almost you know 1.5 increase uh, you know in the revenue that they got and uh, also i have made a few calculations it seems there was a 2x times increase in the ebitda number from 0.5 billion uh, up to 1 billion ebitda that they got for 2020 that's was kind of you know impressive what how covid has influenced epic games you know in particular comparing with other public gaming companies and maybe you know one more interesting point that i observed actually while looking at the numbers and the valuation perspective that was you know kind of surprising for me is that there was a two times step up in the valuation since uh, you know october in uh, 
in, in the valuation of Epic Games. So in 2018, they have raised around uh, the, the enterprise value of around 15 billion, or actually it was stated in the leaked documentation that the valuation was around 12.5. So I'm not sure what number to trust, but anyway, it's somewhere between 12.5 and 15 in 2018 to the most uh, you know, recent one, 28.7. So what's interesting here, you know, why I'm, you know, speaking loud these numbers is that actually the EBITDA declined by over 2.5 times over this period because they have EBITDA number of 2.7 billion by the end of 2018. So the question that I have here for you gentlemen is what are the reasons, you know, behind this growing valuation while EBITDA was, you know, falling almost 2.5 times? You know, I think it's easy to get into the weeds of, you know, what, Unreal's plans are, what their gaming ecosystem they're hoping to evolve into and all that kind of thing. But I think it can be probably simplified into two main things. One is just valuations in general have been on the rise, uh, which influences everyone. And then second, I think just more people are bought into Epic's metaverse ambitions, which Tim Sweeney has marketed pretty well through his, you know, just own conversations and tweets and all of that kind of thing. And the company is, you know, building more of a self-reinforcing ecosystem that you know hopes can be exponentially larger so i think it is you know less about the results that they've had and more about you know investors dreaming about what this metaverse ecosystem ambition can become that's how i see it at least yeah i believe so because i mean the ebitda multiple just increased from six times up to over 20x times uh for the Mm -hmm. company so i mean in general, it highlights what is the current trend in the gaming industry. I mean, looking at this particular case here, you can see, as Aaron told, a clear increase uh, in the demand, let's say, for platform or for ecosystem kind of companies, which uh, not only produce the content, but also, uh, you know, bring something else uh, to the gaming society. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I feel that the market, uh, M&A-wise and investment-wise, is really hot right now. Um, like, Frati. right now. Frati is the buzzword. Frothy, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but isn't it that like today there's already been more investments in this year than the whole of last year, something like that? Yes, Ooh, yes. I okay. I mean, uh, today Tencent, this, uh, you know, uh, Nico Partners has disclosed that Tencent during first uh, four months of this year made 51 investments in comparison to you know roughly 35, 40 over the whole previous year. So this is like, wow. you know, this is like an M&A machine mm-hmm. <laughs> that Tencent launched, you know, <laughs> several years ago. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Sergey, we know what we're talking about when you have you on next time. All right. <laughs> I guess one more last interesting, well, interesting re- re- remark. So, um, I mean, talking about Epic and Apple trial, uh, I think the outcome could be very significant for the gaming industry. But we've already seen um, some reactions by some players just from, from the case itself while this is going on. Aaron, you have something that stood out there? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't know how this trial is going to go, but I do think it is inevitable that regulatory action will take place, whether it's from this trial or honestly, probably like EU regulatory bodies, like no matter what happens in this trial, they'll probably (laughs) step in and create rules as they often like to do. But I think, you know, what was most interesting from what I noticed reactions of other companies were, The most interesting one came from Roblox, because technically, based on Apple's rules, you can make the case that Roblox 
shouldn't even be allowed to exist on the app store, right? Like an app that includes games that Apple doesn't improve is fundamentally against the rules for the same reason Apple isn't allowing a service like xCloud to function. And something about the trial pushed the company to make some changes uh, on its platform. So for example, most anywhere in the Roblox app where, and I haven't checked on like on other platforms, but in the app where it once said games, it now says experiences. The tab that used to say games is now discover and anywhere it used to say playing is now something else, which is crazy. And it's crazy that, (laughs) you know, the fear of breaking some arbitrary rule is so high that Roblox is making pretty meaningful wording changes. And it's also kind of comical, at least to my eyes, just because, you know, the only thing that is changing is words and everyone already knows what Roblox is, but it is telling of, of Apple's power. So I thought that was, that was a really Mm -hmm. interesting ripple effect that the trial is already causing. (laughs) Before, before we end this topic, I just want to make one call for help, but if anyone can give me some more insight into the insane switch retention numbers of Fortnite. Please reach out and tell me what's up. What What is happening over there? Uh, it was just a little surprising to see and, uh, you know, would love to learn more. Yeah, curious. Cool. All right. Next topic. So I've got this data from uh, Super Joost's annual gaming industry review. If you haven't seen that before, you should definitely check it out. And so the question is, is content king? Because he found that from the top 10 companies in revenue in the gaming industry in 2020, six of them uh, were not pure play content firms. So the six that we're talking about are Tencent, Sony, Apple, Microsoft, Nintendo, and Google. So I think actually those six are like the top highest uh, revenue companies when it comes to games, um, which was pretty surprising when you consider that supposedly content is king. So yeah, I, um, I'd like to have your thoughts on that. So first of all, he described, so uh, Superheroes described it as platform companies. Uh, would you consider that the right word, Aaron? I mean, I think these companies have platforms. I would probably reframe things a little bit uh, in a couple ways. One, I mean, I think like is content king, that conversation has been had many times across the entertainment industry at large. And you look at a company like Netflix where that question has been asked, like is content king, is distribution king? And in reality, like both are really important. And what is king is having a self-reinforcing ecosystem that allows you to scale and reinvest into your own content. And I think that's sort of what we're seeing with gaming companies as well. So, you know, the word that I would prefer to use and, and is ecosystem. And then maybe you can break that down a few different ways or have a few different tiers of what ecosystem means. One of those tiers would be like your game franchise ecosystem which is like a Call of Duty where you see that they are extending the same franchise to multiple different platforms and doing some interesting things there. You know, the next tier would be more gaming ecosystems, which includes content, but also platform storefronts, includes hardware. And ultimately, in my mind, it makes sense that the platform companies, who are the ones who aggregate tens of millions of players, take a cut of every transaction, charge high margin monthly subscription fees, and then reinvest those winnings into exclusive games to attract even more players, that those companies are among the largest companies. It makes sense. Like that's the business model. And as you see with with companies like Tencent or Apple, there are many types 
of platforms too. Not everyone has to be an Xbox or a Sony, and they have platforms ranging from social media to even to you know super broad app stores, and all of these can help turbocharge a gaming business through distribution in different type of ways. And then I think the third tier of ecosystem, which isn't really talked about too much now, but I think over the next decade, it will become more of a source of conversation, is entertainment ecosystems at large, where you start to pair games with technology, with more Hollywood type content, with social platforms, and all of these types of things that come together. And you start to see franchises that transcend just games or just TV, movies, and you know, you could take an example of Star Wars or Marvel and recognize that EA receives a lot of value from Star Wars that Disney doesn't capture. And so it makes sense that a company like Disney would want to capture more of that value and more of those touch points with consumers. It's obviously really hard for a big company to succeed in all of these different lenses. But ultimately, the idea of an entertainment ecosystem that brings all of these things together could be a really big idea. So that's more how I think about it. The different types of ecosystems more so than is content important or does just having a platform make you important? I think it's more nuanced than that. Yeah, interesting point of view. Actually, on the last one, uh, did you hear about the deal between AT&T, WarnerMedia and Discovery? I think this is yeah. what you've been speaking about, you know, the, the entertainment and the games, because uh, they're right now, you know, making some kind of the joint venture and probably, as far as I understood, the games are also, you know, part of this transaction. So hopefully we will see this, you know, the last definition of ecosystem that you mentioned already, you know, existing <laughs> and uh, booming maybe, you know, this next year. And, you know, Aaron, I have one more question. Like, what do you think about, you know, such companies as, uh, for example, Applevin, yes, or Zynga, what they're doing right now? Can we call this ecosystem where you have this vertical integration with uh, adding ads businesses and marketing capabilities? Or it's more like, you know, not building an ecosystem, but rather just vertical integration? It's a good question. And I don't know if I have a, a great answer. I do think it is an ecosystem. I don't know if it's the strongest type of ecosystem. I think those companies are building competitive advantages through vertical integration. And, you know, there's some data type of network effect going on, but I don't know if there is as much a network effect to an ecosystem that pulls consumers together as mm -hmm. much as, you know, just what it does financially for the business itself. So I almost think it's a different type of company, but we all of these companies continue to evolve and they might we might start to view them more as ecosystems as they continue to reinvest and move in new directions yeah it's a really interesting question yeah and actually on this point you know please correct me if i'm wrong but just the whole idea behind this vertical integration is that first you can monetize your audience more efficiently yes and at the end of the day you should receive higher ebitda margin is that correct hypothesis or you know what's What's, what's the idea behind this, you know, vertical integration at the end of the day? I mean, if you're speaking about the financial numbers. I think for every company, it's different. And for all of these big players, it's primarily about scale. And I think when you generate greater scale and you're able to have multiple touch points for the same consumer, you're able to cross sell in a lot of ways that ultimately become, ultimately becomes higher margin. And I actually... I think there, there are different ways to look at this where in different companies, different things, whether it's Disney Plus and Disney or Xbox consoles and Xbox, they're loss leaders in order to bring people in and then monetize them in other ways. And I think 
those other ways is, is going to be something that expands what that means with different types of tools coming together, different types of games coming together and the ecosystems that companies are building are just going to be different. And so, you know, what AppLovin is building is going to be completely different from what a, a Microsoft would be building, which would be completely different from what, you know, a Tencent is building, et cetera. So I, I think, you know, when we kind of talk about frameworks here, it's sort of hard to pigeonhole any one company because they're all building out in unique ways that have more to do than gaming. But I think ultimately it is about scale and that scale driving that value creation in terms of cash flows at the end of the day. But every everyone's different. Yeah, yeah. I, I was more asking, you know, regarding uh, about uh, AppLevin and uh, Zynga. <laughs> I mean, I clearly understand what uh, Xbox is doing. Yes, I mean, uh, this is, of course, you know, not the play of pure EBITDA focus, but more like of scale and, uh, you know, other ecosystem companies. Because, you know, I'm really serious, uh, you know, curious about all of that, uh, you know, happening stuff with this vertical integration and adding as businesses. So this is, you know, uh, of a particular interest to me, like uh, what's what's the end game here and, uh, you know, what we should expect from these companies, you know, going forward in the next one, two years. Because, uh, I mean, you know, maybe if Manu, if you have something to add on the on, on the on the platforms and ecosystem uh, companies, please do. But otherwise, I will, you know, just maybe lead to another topic of earnings report by Applevin and just discussing Applevin in more details. I, I kind of had just like a pretty basic question and just to kind of get some more context around Juice's piece here. But I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, would it be a fair char- characterization to say that, yes, all these companies, you know, Tencent, Sony, Apple, Microsoft, sure, they might, they have the platforms, but at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, the content needs to <laughs> exist on these platforms for <laughs> any of it to actually even happen, right? And therefore, platform plus content plus other activities is equal to ecosystem. Am I getting this right? Yeah, I think so. Hmm. All right. Okay. Yeah, it's good. Just good to get that into context because, <laughs> I, yeah, it's a slightly like hyperbolic tagline he had to his piece, which was, is content king? But yeah, I guess, yeah, it, it, it has to be king at some point. I guess it, it's always king, but it's extra powerful when there's stuff around it. There's a platform. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. I think yeah. that that's the main point that has been made. Makes sense. All right. So, um, yeah, Sergey, you already you already indicated that you you were down to talk about AppLevin. So um, let's talk yeah. about this earnings report. Yeah, you know, I looked at the AppLevin report. So first of all, let me just maybe you know briefly outline some some numbers. So they reached approximately 600 million revenue and uh, 130 million EBITDA over the uh, over the last quarter, you know, first quarter of 2021, uh, which basically showed 22% EBITDA margin. Um, what is AppLevin? Yes, like what is the correct definition of AppLevin? Well, the press release states that AppLevin is leading marketing software company. But I honestly, you know, disagree with this definition because from my point of view, AppLevin is a mobile gaming company with exclusive and unique marketing software capabilities. Because if you look right now at the revenue, you know, breakdown, the lion's share of Q1 revenue was, you know, 85% was belonging purely to app studios or gaming studios. And these gaming studios, you know, if we estimate this in the adjusted EBITDA figures, you know, how much of it was to the gaming, it's around 65 or 70% at least, which is driven by the games. So what's the case of calling this a leading marketing software company? I didn't catch it. So what do you think, guys? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you're definitely right. AppOven is a games company. It's evolved from being a marketing software company to a games company with a side of software. And I think, you know, one thing that I picked up on that I thought was interesting is that the company's so-called flywheel is evolving, at least in terms of how they they talk about it. And some of this is obvious, but I think the the shifting language is interesting. When the company was first showcasing its business pre-IPO, this is essentially how it framed up its self-proclaimed flywheel. It said that bringing on more developers would lead to more users and wider distribution through the new apps that come online, which then creates better insights, which improves the software, which then leads to more developers. And that is essentially what they laid out in their S1. And that's a textbook data network effect and offers a modest advantage. It's not the most powerful type of network effect, but it's still it still is good to have, right? And then in this yep. quarter, they framed it a bit different. And like using like their quote, they say, our integrated model is working well. As our content grows, so does our data advantage. In turn, our software improves and we can drive more users to our content. All revenue streams go. So it could just be being slow, but you know what's changed in this case is that the flywheel has evolved to be less about leveraging data for others and more about leveraging data to be smarter about their own content. It's obviously a mix, but like the shifting language <laughs> between the S1 and even what they say right now is pretty clear. And in my opinion, and the company is being extra blunt about it. And I, I just found that interesting, but I ultimately think it's good for AppLovin as they become more of a games focus. It provides a unique advantage. Not only does AppLovin get all of the, the insights and get paid to share them through, you know, third parties who buy their software, but the company is able to reinvest it, its revenue back into user acquisition for its own games where mm -hmm. it doesn't need to pay for its own marketing solutions. And so in effect, like not only do they get their own insights, but they get that pretty meaningful cost saver, uh, which helps keep their margins high. And because margins are high, they can double down in a way that other studios can't. So <laughs> not only is it highly profitable compared to others, but it means AppLovin can also grow faster than average from user acquisition as well. And the scale that like that greater user acquisition brings means that there is even more insights, which then makes the software easier to sell too. So even though scaling games is about long-term cash flow generation, it definitely is. In the, the short to midterm, I think it's less about generating cash flows and more about scaling those insights, which benefits the software of which AppLovin is its own number one customer. So it's like this fascinating but like really nuanced self-reinforcing business model and I, I don't necessarily know where they go next from here other than continue to build out their capabilities and continue to reinvest and continue to acquire to just scale this out but yeah that kind of that internal network effect that they've built is is really interesting to me i think that's where they're basically going to be going for i don't know next two three years at least because there also seems to be like a uh, a number over here in their report about how their new studios revenue is also like apart from like just overall revenue growing but their new studios revenue has actually also grown quite a bit and i guess that's also coming from just their in-house games right and yeah i mean you know coming out with hit games and being able to engineer that consistently uh, that's that's challenge enough and they definitely seem to have all the places or all the pieces in place 
seems seems like they have the pieces in place for that so <laughs> but yeah yeah i believe what you know aaron said you, you know and you know it does make sense but at least what i see right now from the numbers you know going back you know to to this not things you know look, looking at and uh, you know diving into the financials what i observed so far is that actually you know since they start the gaming division you know and uh, we're on this impressive growth yes over the last three years they actually showed 73% revenue kager which is from my personal point of view is uh, you know very high growth you know year over year and it's very hard to sustain uh, they ebitda margin unfortunately you no know, declining readily from 53% in 2018 to 30% in 2019 to 24% by the end of 2020 and right now it's 22% so what i see is that yes uh, on the one hand you tell everyone that yeah because of this vertical integration there'll be high EBITDA margin and you can scale the game at a much higher pace but on the other hand I see that the EBITDA margin right now is declining of course there is a you know impressive growth which is above industry average level you know but just to compare maybe with the you know with the with the Playticker figures uh, Playticker showed you know not that much growth so they they achieved one uh, sorry 640 versus 544, which is 20% growth, Playtica showed compared to the Q1 of 2020 at 40% adjusted EBITDA margin. While Applevin, yes, showed, of course, above 100% growth, but still at, you know, at the cost of the EBITDA. And my question is, you know, when are we going to see this EBITDA? At least I anticipate this by the end of this year to see the EBITDA margin, which should be at least higher than average at the industry level. Otherwise, it's just, you know, words or our expectations that uh, you know because of this vertical integration there would be some improvement in margin somewhere in the future so I, yeah. i'm really you know curious about this and i'm going to track all these numbers you know until i see them <laughs> yeah i think it's it's really interesting and those are good points i don't think we should overly criticize how their margins have trended because one like a 50 percent ebitda margin was probably too high and reflected like not reinvesting enough and then yep. two, like as like the the mix of the business has dramatically changed over the past couple of years as well. Like only three years ago, did they start getting into games and they've scaled it up. So I think it makes sense that as they've brought in many more games and teams that probably from their view like weren't optimized enough, that it makes sense that EBITDA margins would fall and that they would expect as they reinvest into scale that it can grow again. I, I don't know necessarily where the margins will land in the long term. I think as the gaming business gets more mature, it'll probably rise and sort of sustain itself yep. a bit higher. But I mean, I do think they are pretty focused on cash flow growth. Like no matter what you think the specific long term EBITDA margin will be there, I think they they're aiming for 30 percent cash flow growth going forward, which we'll see how that lines up with revenue <laughs> or anything um, and how that that is over a long period of time. But yeah, I mean, I agree. It'll be interesting to see how it shifts. I'm not overly critical of it right now, but it will be an important piece to track going yeah. forward. Yeah, I probably agree with that. And like, I think yeah, the EBITDA margin should definitely like start like stabilizing at a higher number than 28%, which was there at like in 2020. And when we did this like S1 analysis, I was just going back and reading, but 
one of the key reasons for the dropping EBITDA margin year to year was also just their reinvestment into UA for the games, for the in-house games also, which mm-hmm. kind of led to, you know, their uh, sales and marketing expenses uh, really going up. So as their portfolio of games keeps increasing because they are also, you know, they're increasing the number of studios that not only that which they're acquiring, but also the games from these studios, the number of games coming out from these studios is also increasing. All that is definitely going to be contributing to an increasing EBITDA margin and possibly stabilization over the long term. So, yeah, it'll um, be interesting. Don't get me wrong, guys. I'm just, you know, like uh, asking what I'm going to look for. So I'm not criticizing them, uh, but just, you know, wondering what's going to happen with the EBITDA margin going forward when the games will mature and, uh, yeah. you know, when the, when they're going to show this synergy effects of vertical integration of the businesses. Yeah. yeah, and one more interesting fact, you know, that I observed at least is that this is an impressive job done by AppLevin in terms of the ads monetization. I mean, I haven't seen, you know, the companies with such huge percentage of gaming revenue derived from ads. Uh, so for, you know, just for understanding, in Q1 2020, they reported 47% of ads revenue of total gaming revenue, I mean, uh, derived by ads. And in Q1 uh, 21, it was 30%. So this is like an impressive amount of the ads monetization that they do. And I think one of the best at doing this, actually, because I haven't seen such a you know, great number with, with the portfolio that they have. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Another piece that I kind of want to hit on that I thought was interesting that relates to a, like an ongoing conversation that I've sort of been sensing around AppLovin and Zynga to some degree, too, where there's a lot of talk of conflict of interest around how they they take data from lots of companies and then act on it to improve their own business. And I think that's partially true. It is true. I don't think conflict of interest is a huge deal necessarily. Like every company can vote with their own money on what tools they use. Um, but from AppLevin's standpoint, when you just kind of look at them in a vacuum, it's worth it because they're becoming self-reliant and becoming your own number one customer is generally a healthy place to be. And then second, even though some customers might have parted ways, its enterprise customer stats have grown recently. And part of that might be because of the adjust acquisition. But I thought this was interesting. The number of enterprise clients, which they define as like the companies that have a run rate of over $125,000 a year, the number of those clients grew about 50% over the past year to nearly 200 of those clients. And those clients are spending 32% more on average this quarter than from last year. And adding adjust obviously helps here too. So there's a little bit that you probably just need to, to figure out about the, the impact of adjust. But it's interesting to see that despite all the criticism, like they are growing <laughs> not only the number of clients pretty effectively, but also how those clients are spending. And I'm interested to see how adjust starts playing into the picture too. I don't have a really strong opinion on adjust tech. It's just not really what I know. But I think that what Adjust brings to AppLovin that could add value pretty immediately, that also lowers their margin too, but could be worth it, is their enterprise sales force of over 300 people. And so I think to start, any cross-selling between Adjust and AppLovin's user base would be high margin. And that perhaps even more so like instilling that skill set and part of that culture across AppLovin in general would be high value because I didn't even realize that AppLovin didn't have a sales force before the adjust acquisition, which I find pretty impressive. Like there are software companies that are able to achieve that, but it's impressive 
nonetheless. But now that they have one through adjusts, I'm really curious to see how they use it. And again, not being like overcritical of how they think about cost or margins in the near term, but really thinking about like what are like the economics of their investments and ultimately what they're what they're leading to, I think is going to be really interesting to see. But in general, I just wanted to highlight that a lot of the conversation about conflict of interest, while it could be true, the underlying numbers for AppLovin show no signs of it being an issue, really. Yeah, I believe Q2 results will be interesting for, you know, for every public gain company because, uh, you know, there was a lot, there is also a lot of discussion that there's going to be, you know, some drop in, in the activity and the engagement of players. Uh, but let's see. Let's see what's going to happen. And of course, I mean, AppLevin is a very interesting business, you know, to track going forward, like what's going to happen and, uh, you know, how it's going to evolve. I know for sure that I'm not getting out of the house anytime soon, so I'm going to be playing a lot of games and not contributing to the engagement <laughs> drop. <so. laughs> when everyone's yeah, partying yeah. outside, Manu's playing video games. Love it. Yeah. Chess. <laughs> alone. Chess, that's it. <laughs> hey, playing against someone, right? So uh, you're not alone. Yeah, awesome. True. All right. So yeah, it's going to be cool to uh, maybe in uh, in three months' time on the on, on the podcast review AppLovin's Q2 results. Um all right, so uh, that rounds up this episode. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Sergey. Thank you, Manu, for uh, your insights. I certainly learned a lot. I hope our listeners also learned a lot. Just a quick reminder, please feel free to share your thoughts, any questions that you have. Um, and you can always send them to metacost at navic.co. So uh, that way you can reach us. Otherwise, you can, I guess, find us on LinkedIn or, or Twitter. So uh, thank you for listening. Have a great weekend and speak to you next Friday. Cheers. Thank See you, everyone. Thanks again.